electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. A rising rate's actually good for tech stocks. The NASDAQ 100 is up 9% from Monday's close, despite today's losses. Last Monday's close, that is. It all happened while the 10-year yield has shot higher. We'll look at whether their relationship has just changed for the better. And a Marshall Plan for energy. That's the call from J.P. Morgan chief Jamie Dimon, who says the U.S. now needs to help wean Europe from Russian oil. This as President Biden is headed to Brussels to meet with NATO allies. We'll look at whether something like that is already in the works. And on that note, expect the number of EVs sold in the U.S. to double to nearly a million units this year. We'll ask the CEO of EVgo if the charging infrastructure is ready to keep up with all this demand. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with the market. It's red, not markedly so, but still significant. But Kelly, two years ago on this day, do you know what it was? Uh... You do. I know you do. She's just she's just joshing with us here. Two days ago today, it was the pandemic low for the stock market because back then the S&P 500 on an intraday basis, March 23rd, 2020, hit a low of 2191 or thereabouts. So let's do the quick and dirty math. We're about 100, 105%, more than a doubling, if you will, from where we were at the pandemic lows. So 44.84, the last trade there, down one half of 1%, fractional declines, 44.84, 34.045 for the Dow, off about 1%, 322 points in the NASDAQ composite, just down about two-tenths of 1%, down 27 points. We'll see whether or not that interest rate story plays out as Kelly talks about the kind of dynamic with valuations. One other place to watch, speaking of, is those 10-year Treasury note yields. Since the beginning of the month, we were closer down to about 1.84% to start off the month. Now we are all the way up to 2.34%. And believe it or not, that's a pullback from the, the recent highs that we've seen just in the last couple of days. So now we're talking going back to all the way May of 2019, highest yield since then. Why isn't the market declining more? I guess we'll find out later on in that discussion. And then check out what's happening with some of these stocks like General Mills, because earnings season still rolls on. Big food processor, big food manufacturing company, General Mills up about 2% off the session highs. But at one point today, we saw bigger gains because this company says that they are seeing still demand for people eating at home. Profits be better or better than estimates. Revenues better than estimates as well. So food companies, again, certainly a focus here. And speaking of, I get to draw a lot of yellow on the screen here with this next particular graphic, because when it comes to Archer Daniels Midland, which is also another food company, ConocoPhillips, Nucor, CF Industries Progressive, each of these guys gets big gold stars because each of these, Kelly, has hit a record intraday high at some point today. So a nice move higher, especially when it comes to commodities-related stocks and even an insurer in Progressive, Kel. Back over to you. Even as the markets are lower, Tom, thank you very much. My next guest has some good news and some bad news for investors. The bad news, his latest piece is headlined, The Odds Don't Favor the Fed's Soft Landing. 
So what's the good news? Joining us now is Greg Ip. He's the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Uh, somewhat echoing what we heard from Carl Icahn yesterday on Closing Bell, in fact, when Icahn warned uh, Scott Wapner that he thought we could have a pretty rough patch ahead. As we wait to check in with, there he is. Let's see if Greg is available now. Uh, Greg, welcome. It's good to see you. Hey, Kelly, how are you? I'm good. So tell me why you think that a soft landing is not something people should be necessarily counting on right now. Well, if you look at the last three uh, instances of soft landings that Chair Powell referenced in his speech this week, 1965, 1984, 1994, the circumstances are just very different today. First of all, uh, in those instances, they were trying to keep inflation from going up. This time, we're actually trying to push it down because at 5%, it's way above where the Fed wants it to be. So that's number one. Number two, by a lot of measures, the labor market is tighter. At 3.8%, the unemployment rate is lower than it's ever been at the start of any Fed tightening, except for one, which did end in a recession. And the final point, which is, I think is really key, is look at real interest rates. The federal funds rate is you know, two to three percentage points below inflation. Bond yields are negative in real terms. Monetary policy is just way more stimulative than it was at the start of those other episodes. So the way I would put it, Kelly, is that you have an economy that is already traveling above the speed limit, and the Fed, far from applying the brakes, still has its foot on the gas. Uh, trying to reverse that process is not one that I think bodes well for a smooth, soft landing. You know, the market reaction, at least in the past couple of weeks, has been encouraging, though, wouldn't you say? I mean, I was shocked that it wasn't more concerned about what Powell said at the press conference and then even what he said at NABE this week, you know, when he just flat out talks about, yeah, if we need to, we'll raise half a point and, you know, we could go above neutral and and markets are taking it in stride, aren't they? Well, they are. But I'd say a couple of things, Kelly. First of all, um, in their view, neutral is 2.8 percent, which actually isn't very high. And if inflation ends up more like 3 percent instead of 2 percent, and there's a good case that it will be, then that's still negative in real terms. So if they go a little bit above that to say 4 percent, 1 percent, which would be 1 percent in real terms, that's nothing to get too worried about. And the other point I'd make, Kelly, and this is really key, is that inflation is a two-way street. If it drives up interest rates, that's bad, but it also flows to the bottom line. You know, a second ago, you were talking about General Mills. One of the reasons they raised guidance today is pricing power. If you can raise prices, if, in other words, if inflation is going up at the same time as interest rates, you don't really worry that much. So stock valuations, in some sense, are a little bit immune to higher nominal rates as long as they're compensated by inflation. That's exactly the set of circumstances that the Fed cannot allow to persist, because if you're not getting real interest rates higher, you're not applying the brakes. You use a phrase in your piece that uh, Bill Lee used when we talked to him yesterday. He was skeptical that the Fed could achieve an immaculate disinflation, which is something that you are, are looking at as well. I mean, why is that outcome so unrealistic? And what are the trade-offs from fighting to, to pull down inflation? Well, you're familiar with the Phillips curve, right, which is this uh, age-old relationship that says when the unemployment rate is high, inflation is low, and so when, get, when inflation is low, uh, unemployment is high. And what that tells you is that both in theory and the Fed's models and historically, that if you start out with very high inflation, getting it down requires higher unemployment. It's not pleasant, but that is more or less how the models work. The Fed doesn't see that. They seem to think you can get from four, uh, 5% inflation now to a little over 2% without any rise in unemployment. That's what we mean by immaculate disinflation. The argument sort of like goes as follows. We have some supply disruptions. They'll work their way through the system. More people will flood back into the labor market as the pandemic recedes. That will hold down wages. 
and inflation expectations, which influences people's actual behavior, are still anchored at 2%. Look, I want to give them some credit. All those facts are true, and they all may yet work out. More, moreover, it's still actually kind of the consensus on Wall Street that it will work out. I'm just saying that historically it hasn't. Historically, if you, end, if you are trying to get inflation that's too high down to something lower, you've needed to put pressure on the economy, and unemployment has tended to rise. And every time unemployment has risen by at least half a percentage point, you get a recession. Yeah, and that's not a very big move. Uh, the double-dip recession of the early 1980s probably being the classic case. Greg, it's good. I was going to say it's great to have you. It's sobering to talk to you today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Greg Ip with The Wall sure. Street Journal. All right, we just had an auction of 20-year bonds, which I think uh, this week have been amongst the highest-yielding part of the curve, period. Let's get to Rick Santelli, see how that went down today. Rick? Yes, highest yielding uh, treasury maturity on the yield curve for a bit now, actually. And this auction is a 19-year, 11-month. We're adding to an auction that was originally opened last month. After all that, I will tell you the grade is A+. This was a fantabulous auction in terms of demand. Let's think about what that says. Everybody's been biting their fingernails. Think about home shoppers, about interest rates skyrocketing the last couple weeks. But yet... All these investors tried to catch that falling knife. So $16 billion of, of the 19-year, 11-month yield, 2.651. That is below the low of the when-issued market that I was monitoring right up to 1 Eastern. Lower yield, higher price. All the metrics, all the metrics except for indirect bidders, which were still above the 10 auction average, were the best they've been ever for a 20-year bond auction, keeping in mind that we brought them back in May of 2020. So stellar performance, and I really do think that gives us a bit of a reprieve on rising rates, and I think I know what they're looking at, Kelly. Everybody's talking about this giant rebalancing for the end of the first quarter, and the tail is wagging the dog with respect to they're buying treasuries and selling equities, trying to get ahead of the big pension crowd that seems to be strategically doing the same towards the end of the month. Back to you. Great point. 265, the yield on that 20-year. Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. All right, speaking of which, let's take a closer look at the NASDAQ right now, which has been surprisingly resilient to interest rates shooting higher. Remember, go back to the first few months of 2022. We saw the 10-year yield jump about 40 basis points, and during that time, the NASDAQ dropped more than 9% as high valuation names imploded. But fast forward to today, and it's a very different story. From the start of March, the 10-year has jumped about 60 basis points. And at the same time, the NASDAQ is up 6%. Let's turn to the man who called it, CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli. Mike, you warned us not to make too much of this relationship, but why has it changed now? Well, Kelly, I don't want to take any credit for having really called any short-term market move. I've just been skeptical in general of how this direct linear uh, perception of this relationship between yields and growth stock performance was overplayed. And, and I think it's one factor among many, many, many. Uh, and it has had some uh, connection to relative outperformance of big quality growth stocks relative to cyclical value stocks over the past year or so. But it's only one tiny influence. I don't really buy the argument that the market in real time is trying to figure out the value of long duration assets such as a share of Microsoft 
based on the discounted value at today's risk-free rate. It's just not the way the market operates. Now, most of the times when tech was outperforming and yields were falling, why were yields falling? People were concerned about the pace of the reopening. People were concerned about relative earnings growth of cyclical companies. And so you go to those companies that are seen to be more steady. Final point is the NASDAQ, the average NASDAQ stock, fell 45% from its high. High to low, some point last year to the recent lows. That tells you we're not really fine-tuning these valuations based on wiggles in, in, in yields. And, you know, if sure. you go back to 2018, the 10-year yield went from around 2% above 3 Tech outperformed by a lot over that period. We didn't talk about it. We started talking about it when we needed explanations for why people were racing into every single software stock and paying massive valuations. And we convinced ourselves it was because yields were staying low. I guess to me it would make sense that sort of higher yields were a proxy for liquidity coming out of the system. I, mean, I don't know to what extent that's true, but it seems yeah. like that there's been this kind of giant sucking sound that's collapsed everything from IPOs to SPACs to high valuation stocks to meme stocks to some of the high flying crypto names. So there seems to be some larger relationship, although I, I don't know how we would determine cause and effect. I do buy that, Kelly, that there is an element of that, that there's a sense that when yields are going uh, higher, and in theory it should be because capital is being used for real-world purposes a little bit more than just for you know financial uh, speculation, things like that. Again, that's on paper. It's a textbook explanation. It does make some sense. I, I will give you that. Uh, but to me, it's not so much that you want to put too much trust in that being the swing factor uh, on a uh, on a day to day basis necessarily. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel like you know, there's so many things that if, if you were going to buy the ARC portfolio in January of 2021 and pay 12 times forward sales on unprofitable businesses, you needed to persuade yourself of many, many things, including the size of the addressable markets, how much market share they were going to get, you know, exactly how fast this transformation was going to happen. And other people were going to buy it from you at a higher price. And finally, maybe Maybe you also had to say, and rates are going to stay really low for a long time, and right. therefore liquidity is going to remain high. <laughs> I take your point, though. So where do we go from here? And, and again, a lot of the big tech names have been consistently called out for having pricing power, positioned to do well in an inflationary environment, don't have as much exposure to headcount as uh, other parts of this. So a lot of positives uh, for a place like now. We talked to our friend Paul Hickey at Bespoke, who said tech usually outperforms during a rate hike cycle. It's outperformed in the past week. Where yes. do we go from here? I think what it what it basically comes down to is if quality and relative earnings durability are going to come back into favor, those types of growth stocks and tech stocks that have those attributes would probably do well in this environment, right? Because we're talking about a general slowdown in earnings growth. Uh, and so if that's going to be the concern, it's going to be those stocks that probably do well and not the Goldman Sachs unprofitable tech index, right? Yeah. So I think you have to, we're probably going to be drawing those distinctions. Finally, if inflation stays high and it's a high nominal growth economy and somehow we stay at a recession, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that top line growth is going to be scarce and maybe big tech is not going to be the, the, you know, the leader. Oh, it's fascinating. Michael, thank you as always. We appreciate okay, it. Mike Santoli. Coming up, President Biden heading to Europe for meetings with the EU, the G7 and NATO. Is a Marshall plan for energy a real possibility? We're live in Brussels next. Plus, major chipmaker CEOs are on Capitol Hill, making the case for billions of dollars in subsidies for their industry. Should Congress cut them a deal? And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets, which are red across the board. The Dow down 336, the Nasdaq down a third of a percent, so it's actually outperforming. And the 10-year yield, 233. We're back in a moment. 
This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tomorrow marks one month since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. And President Biden is set to meet with NATO leaders as the world tries to gauge just how much Russia has gained in that period of time and what measures it might resort to next. Kayla Tausche is in Brussels with what we can expect from tomorrow's emergency summit. Kayla? Well, Kelly, President Biden is currently on his way here to Brussels, where tomorrow he will be meeting with the leaders of NATO, the G7, and also the European Union as they try to discuss uh, next steps to assist Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Tomorrow, the U.S. and its allies are expected to announce a few items to ramp up pressure on Russia. Another round of sanctions, an increase in NATO troops across the eastern flank that could be longer term in nature, more humanitarian aid for Ukrainians and a plan to offset Russian gas for Europe with President Vladimir Putin of Russia now demanding that Europe pay Russia in rubles for its gas beginning next week. Today, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said membership for Ukraine in the alliance is not on the agenda, but that the group will be discussing providing additional defenses for Ukraine as it tries to guard itself against chemical attacks or cyber attacks. Stoltenberg also saying that the role of China will be discussed. China has provided Russia with political support, including by spreading blatant lies and disinformation. And allies are concerned that China could provide material support for the Russian invasion. The White House, as of yesterday, says that so far no military or material support by China for Russia had happened, although that could change, Kelly, at any moment. And to your point, Kayla, about Russia being asked uh, to be paid in rubles, an advisor to Draghi has said Italy's not inclined to do so. Germany has said paying for gas in rubles would break contracts, so it's unclear this is going anywhere. Yeah, and there is also a concern, Kelly, that even as uh, Europe is not sanctioning uh, Russian oil and gas, that Putin may seek to weaponize the country's energy supply and start withholding gas unless some of those terms like being paid in rubles are met, essentially putting Europe between a rock and a hard place, which is one of the reasons why uh, leaders are so keen to wean, wean Europe off of Russian energy. And they say that they will do that once and for all with this plan that's going to be 
announced tomorrow, Kelly. Wow. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Brussels. Now, as the president works to shore up support against Russia, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, he's calling for an energy marshall plan for the U.S. and Europe. But are we already going that route? Joining me now is Fred Kemp. He's president and CEO of the Atlanta Council and a CNBC contributor. Fred, we've seen a number of, uh, I mean, as we heard from Dan Jurgen uh, yesterday at his own energy conference in the past couple of weeks, people from Europe were on the sidelines with American business leaders trying to make deals to secure long-term energy supplies. Oh, that's right. Uh, you know, some of the oil producers, uh, natural gas producers in the U.S., I complain about the mixed messages from the uh, Biden administration on the one hand, clean energy on the other hand, please start pumping and start producing gas more quickly because look at the price um, uh, that Americans are going to have to pay. And that's certainly going to have an impact on the midterm elections. Um, I, I think my whole view in this is don't let any crisis go to waste. This is a time where we know that Europe uh, allowed itself to become far too dependent on Russia, particularly Germany. Uh, the Jamie Dimon's idea floated in this White House meeting with uh, 16 uh, business leaders and, and uh, you know, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, uh, Gina Raimondo, uh, Secretary of Commerce and others. And, and the president dropped in. It, it, I think this is the time that you can put those kinds of pieces together, where you can put that kind of coalition together. Uh, but it does take time to... Uh, to change sources of energy delivery. So it's not a light switch where you, you turn it on and off overnight. It certainly isn't. And I, I guess that's the point is, do we need a, a specific, let's just call, you know, let's call it a Marshall Plan, um, or is the market going to, to go that way itself? Because these companies are dealing with European uh, customers now. Jürgen again told us yesterday he thinks this diminishes Russia's status, obviously, as an energy superpower after this, because it can no longer be counted as reliable. Forget what you even think about the politics. If you can't count on the reliability of those supplies, you have to turn elsewhere. So is that already in motion or does it require a bigger, you know, effort by the U.S. and European leaders to to put it into motion or to, to sort of put up the funds, I assume that would be implied to support it. Yeah, and Kelly, the answer is that you need both. You need the markets to move the LNG uh, into Europe. You, uh, you need the political leaders to decide to buy build more terminals, uh, certainly in Germany where there's no LNG terminal. Let's not forget that Chancellor Angela Merkel, for everything else she achieved while being German chancellor, uh, turned away from nuclear energy. And that has turned out to be a, a very short-sighted uh, yeah. decision on her part. And that now has to be redressed. Those, so those were wrong government decisions that now have to be addressed with right government decisions. Uh, also, in, in our hurry to go in a greener and more renewable way, which is the right way to go, we have to go in that direction. We've forgotten that an energy transition is a transition. Yeah. And during this period of time, you need oil and gas. And so the, uh, the disinvestments in oil and gas that we've undertaken over the last few years, we're now paying for that. Final question, Fred, and, and to sort of pivot uh, somewhat, but what do you expect as everyone is gathering now? I assume they're going to talk about what will be done in response if Russia uses chemical weapons or worse here as this continues. What kind of language um, should we expect on that front? So underscoring all of President Biden's uh, uh, trip, uh, his NATO meeting, his EU meeting, G7 meeting Thursday in Brussels, and then Poland uh, on Friday, is are we going to get further with Putin by confronting him 
or are we going to get further with Putin by not confronting him too far uh, for fear of him escalating? And I think the mood is starting to move more in the direction toward confronting. And he's going to hear that particularly in Poland, where Russians have been threatening more and more and more uh, clearly uh, that Poland could be a target itself because Poland is doing so much to arm uh, Ukraine. That's a big NATO decision. If Poland gets hit in one way or another, even in some of its arms depots uh, going to the Ukraine, that is then an Article 5 offense in NATO. Uh, attack on one is attack on all. But then how does NATO respond to that? So I, I think the undercurrent of tomorrow is going to be talking about that, those kinds of dangerous contingencies. Right. But underneath it all is does NATO, does the U.S. have to get a little bit more involved in order to save Ukraine? Wow. Well, that is very well put uh, in terms of us understanding the tensions and the discussions here. Fred, great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Fred Kemp with the Atlantic Council. Still ahead, charging company EVgo just gave full year guidance that fell shy of Wall Street estimates, even as the U.S. is expected to sell a record number of EVs this year. We'll speak exclusively with the CEO about the industry's growing pains next. Plus, new data on Moderna's COVID vaccine for kids under six. What it is and what the next steps are. Moderna shares are actually down today. And as we head to break, the Dow is at session lows. Home Depot, one of the biggest laggards there. Only about seven names are in the green. Apple leading the way. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older. Like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are at session lows right now. The Dow's down 382 for a more than 1% drop. The Nasdaq down eight tenths of a percent. The S&P down 41, 4470 there. So again, we're below 4500 by a pretty decent margin. Energy is the outperformer as oil rebounds to around $115 a barrel today. You can see that sector up 1.6% while healthcare and financials are lagging. Clean energy is also in the green today with Enphase, Azure, SolarEdge, and Sunrun all gaining in the range of 3%. In fact, the Invesco solar ETF is actually outperforming oil and gas over the past month, although solar is still about 23% off the highs. The housing names are getting hit again as mortgage rates spike. The XHB and the ITB, those are both down more than 20%. Those ETFs this year, you can see Horton and Williams-Sonoma, for instance, down another 5% today. And you can't talk rates without mentioning the banks. The KBE, the KRE, that's the regional ETF, both down about 5% in March for their worst month since June. And let's check on some of the China tech names 
names, Aichi, Pinduo Duo, and Billy Billy. Uh, strong gains uh, again today. Aichi up 13%. It's almost a $5 stock, but at its highs, it was trading at 46. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson back on Capitol Hill for day three of her confirmation hearings. She responded to senators seeking to portray her as a potentially activist justice. She reminded them that the Constitution gives Congress the power to make laws and the judicial branch the power to interpret those laws. In Arkansas, the first arrest in the car show shooting that killed one person and injured 26 on Saturday. 22-year-old Brandon Deandra Knight has been charged with battery and first-degree assault. Police had said that the shooting was the result of a gunfight between two people. And in Brussels, NATO chief Stoltenberg says that the alliance will double the number of battle groups on its eastern flank as part of efforts to deter Russian attacks on NATO countries. Stoltenberg also warned Russia against using nuclear weapons following its invasion of Ukraine. He says that Russia must understand it could never win a nuclear war. And on the news tonight, what are Putin's likely next moves as the invasion of Ukraine drags on? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Coming up, when it comes to the Fed, it's a matter of would versus should, according to one money manager. Why she says the number of hikes doesn't really matter and has the names to buy as rates climb. That's next. And check out shares of Tesla, which hit over $1,000 a share earlier in the session, 1040 to be exact. We'll speak with the CEO of charging company EVgo about the electric vehicle ramp up as oil and gas spikes. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are slipping today on concerns from oil to supply chain disruptions and, of course, inflation. My next guest says the market is overshooting what the Fed will do this year. And it doesn't matter how many times they hike rates because real rates will still remain negative. Joining me now is Nancy Tangler. She's the CEO and chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. Nancy, it's great to see you. Thanks, Kelly. It's so good to see you. Why is it so important to focus on real rates? And and, I mean, you're absolutely right. By the Fed's own projections, even with as hawkish as they were last week, real rates would still be negative through the end of next year. Well, Kelly, you know, this has been the exception to every rule. And so um, and and I think you've written some really provocative pieces on this, starting with the um, piece you wrote last week or the week before, where you argued or or pointed out that the the three month had actually three month tenure had actually steepened on the Fed's first announcement of a 25 base point cut. And then you quoted Esther George, who said, you know, if the Fed wasn't in the market buying securities, uh, we'd probably have a tenure at three and a half percent. So it may be that I'm wrong about this, but historically, you, you the way you break the back of inflation is you raise rates above the inflation rate. And, you know, I was managing money in the bulker years in the second half. I want to point that out. <laughs> and um, <laughs> stocks, you know, during his tenure, stocks were up 360%. Um, but he raised the prime rate to 21%. I mean, that's where prime went. So, and, and inflation was at 14 and a half. It took a lot to break it. And I think what's different this time is that you know, in, in normal Fed hikes, you have the reflective phase where the Fed's raising uh, rates to reflecting a strong economy, and then we move into the restrictive phase. Well, in this case, we have PMIs that are rolling over. Usually PMIs are going up when the Fed raises rates, and we've had a year of global central banks uh, raising rates. So I think it's going to be difficult for them to get there, uh, though I wish they would, and I wish they'd do it quickly. I just don't think it's going to matter that much. I think the balance sheet's probably going to 
matter more. Well, what you're saying reminds me of what Larry Summers was writing in the Washington Post earlier last week, where he said, you know, they might have to go to 5% or, or, or something of that magnitude to achieve those goals. And obviously that's not in the market. So you're kind of saying a lot of this is noise until or unless we get to, a, to such a point. And you've looked back at that cycle kind of a little different, but just because it gives a recent example, the early 2000s, what outperformed then? What does it point to in terms of the parts of the market you want to focus on for this kind of difficult time we could be facing? Yeah, it, it is. It's somewhat analogous. You're right, though. It's not entirely analogous. Um, rates went from 1% to 5%. I can't remember how many hikes there were. Um, and there were other things going on, obviously, in the economy. But what, what did well, counterintuitively, was technology, uh, energy, materials. Uh, those were names that stand out to me. And, you know, we also have rising inflation. And so, as we all well know, and so, but many of those names benefit from that as well. So we like, you know, things like EOG, which which has is a great natural gas play. Uh, their capital allocation to shareholders has been robust, and they paid three special dividends in a year, and they've doubled their dividend. Wow. We like Steel Dynamics, which is you know kind of an ESG-ish uh, steel company, if you will. They're trying to find alternate ways to heat the flat roll steel uh, other than just uh, energy and um, or oil. And we like other names in technology and defense. Yeah, Palo Alto, uh, LHX, you mentioned. So let me ask you, when the debate is kind of happening where we have Greg Ipps' piece warning it's going to be hard for the Fed to achieve a soft landing and Carl Icahn warning that we could be in for a very hard landing ahead. And yet you've got some names here in, in a general sense of being constructive on the market. So what would you tell investors about kind of the range of outcomes we could be facing? Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen one soft landing in my career, and that was in 94 with Alan Greenspan um, after a series of rate hikes. I don't think this is that. Um, so I do think that that the economy is going to be, um, well, we already know it's slowing, and it was slowing before Russia invaded Kuwait. And we also know that earnings have to come down, but nobody has begun yet to revise earnings estimates down. So in this kind of an environment, you want to have reliable growers. Dividend growers are even better because dividend growers are going to be a hedge against inflation. Uh, and so many of the names, except for Palo Alto that I mentioned, have strong dividend cultures and policies. And managements are raising dividends. So I don't think it's all bad news. They, they expect to see the ability to deliver decent earnings. And I think you'll get decent returns in the stock market, you know, um, bar, barring a, a serious recession. I don't think we're going to get that. First of all, I think we're a year away at least. And it'll be short and shallow when we do get one because there's a lot of good things going on in this economy, not the least of which is tech capex spending, which drives productivity and people beginning to return to work um, now. Now maybe because they have to with higher levels of inflation. So the participation rate is inching up. Yeah, um, no, and with everything going on that you described, most people just throw their hands up and go, I, I, I can't make sense of that environment. So I really appreciate the sort of advice on look for those dividend names as dividend growers and some of the other sectors that could navigate this period. It's great as always to have you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Nancy Tangler with Laffer Tangler Investments. And as we head to break, let's do a little show and tell. The chip stocks getting hammered this year as both COVID-related and geopolitical supply chain headwinds persist. Intel actually faring the best of the group, only down about 5%, whereas AMD is down about 20%. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger on Capitol Hill today to urge Congress to pass a bill to support the industry. He also appeared on Squawk Box beforehand, stressing the importance of moving manufacturing to the U.S. 
we're either going to invest in this industry you know, now to see it rebuild or we're going to decline. And today, 12% in the U.S., half of that's Intel. You know, this is precarious. And that's part of the reason for my urgency and passion on this topic right now. Because I fear if it starts dropping below 10% very far, we might never recover and we will have a permanent dependence on Asia and other parts of the world that are just geopolitically unstable for the long term. We must act now. Welcome back. Chips are mostly lower today with Micron, one of the worst performers in the Nasdaq 100. It's down four and a half percent. Executives from the industry are testifying before Congress in support of the Chips Act. Elon Moy on Capitol Hill with the latest for us. Elon. Well, Kelly, that bill would funnel $52 billion to the domestic semiconductor industry. And during today's hearing, lawmakers framed this funding as a national security priority. China has also demonstrated aggressive behavior toward Taiwan and stated its intent to challenge Taiwan's sovereignty and independence. Taiwan now accounts for 92% of the world's most advanced semiconductor manufacturing capacity. Think of the consequences if China were to invade our Taiwanese partner. But that issue cuts both ways as well. Republican Senator Rick Scott challenged Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger over the business his company does in China and his commitment to restoring American manufacturing. Concerns that I have around the geopolitical situation drive the passion and urgency to build this industry in the U.S. This is a core reason why we are here. We have allowed this industry to shift to Asia. It is time for us to get it back onto American soil. It. And we why, are why, passionate why about the taxpayers that. That's why the CHIPS Act is so critical to get it done now. Now, earlier today, the Senate did vote to move forward with formal negotiations over the broader innovation package that includes the funding for chips. And, Kelly, lawmakers say they hope to get this passed before the summer. Back to you. Does it look likely at this point? Yeah, there is bipartisan support for it. That vote in the Senate um, had 66 senators, Republicans and Democrats, voting in favor of it. So clearly, both sides of the aisle like the idea of this funding and the idea of the innovation package. The challenge here will be sort of hammering out all of the ancillary things that will ride along with this package, like research priorities, whether it'll include trade provisions. There are handouts to other types of industries as well that are included. So if they can get all those details right, this does have a good chance of passing. But again, in Congress, the details sometimes can be the whole game. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a big if, uh, but we take your point. Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy on Capitol Hill today. Still ahead, there may be a silver lining in Europe's energy crisis for the EV companies. We'll focus on the U.S. stocks with European exposure, including this name down 30% over the past year, why it could see a boost. We'll talk to the CEO of EVgo about the company's push to get charging stations across the U.S. as demand surges here. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. The EV charging names have taken a hit over the past year. Could Europe's move away from Russian energy be an opportunity for a turnaround? Pippa Stevens is here with a look at some of the U.S. names that could benefit. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Europe is rethinking its dependence on Russian energy, which could mean opportunity for electric vehicle charging companies. Moving away from Russian oil means more EVs, which means more chargers. Public charging points are key, and at the moment, there's a big disparity between countries. As this chart from Raymond James shows, you can see 
not a lot of infrastructure in Eastern Europe. Now, part of this, no doubt, the paradox that low adoption won't incentivize infrastructure and vice versa. Now, in order to reach decarbonization goals, public chargers in the EU need to grow 15-fold by the end of the decade to 3.9 million, according to Raymond James. This translates to between 3 and 4 billion euros in capital spending per year. Now, the market is fragmented, and there are some U.S.-listed charging companies that have exposure to the region. That includes ChargePoint, Wallbox, Volta, and Tritium, which just began trading in January. Important to note, though, that these stocks are all down sharply for 2022, and none of these companies are profitable. But certainly a lot more focus these days on EV infrastructure, both in the U.S. and Europe. Kelly. Absolutely, Pippa. Thank you. And speaking of EV charging names, a chopping trading day for EVGO after they beat revenue estimates but reported a fourth quarter net income loss nearly triple that of a year ago. Stocks up about 25% in the past month as energy prices spike and the EV push ramps up. Is America's charging infrastructure equipped to meet growing demand? Let's welcome in Kathy Zoe. She is the CEO of EVGO. She was also chief of staff for energy policy under former President Bill Clinton. Kathy, it's good to see you again. What accounts for the wider loss? But we are actually on task to, to grow and meet demand for ch the charging needs for the United States. I mean, your intro was talking about the European players. EVGO is focused on the massive market growth that's happening here in the United States. And we, as a growth stage company, we are building ahead of demand and we're investing in that growth to meet that demand. Our focus is on fast charging. And so we're deploying across the country um, in partnership with General Motors, Toyota, and a number of others to, to provide convenient, reliable, fast charging for drivers all across the country as new models of EVs become available. Would you partner with a company like ChargePoint or are you more competitors? No, we have different business models. ChargePoint, uh, what we do is we build on and operate charging infrastructure. ChargePoint sells equipment. And what we what we do is we we have roaming agreements with, with customers that are on ChargePoint's network. We also focus on the fast chargers that will give you 150 miles of range in about 15 minutes. ChargePoint's focus has been largely level two chargers where you get the same uh, range, 150 miles in, say, four to six hours. Right. So different use cases, different needs, um, and different business models. Right. Some people can plug in all day at work or, uh, you know, maybe they want to take a really long lunch, but a lot of other people uh, <laughs> need to charge on the go. We are seeing, I mean, I can certainly say anecdotally, starting to see some monthly data showing it, it's a spike in interest and sales of EVs. What's that going to do for wait times? For at the charging infrastructure at the moment, look, we EVGO has got a network that can that can ably handle all of the EV sales that are expected to occur in 2022. So the infrastructure that we're putting out there right now is designed to meet that growing demand that's going to be happening with the cars that come out in 23, 24, and 25. Our business model is that we build slightly ahead of demand. We do the Wayne Gretzky thing where we skate to where the puck is going to be, but not too far ahead of the puck because we're deploying investor capital in ways that's going to pencil to double-digit returns for our shareholders. So what we've got plenty of headroom right now in the market for all of those EVs. We hope, we hope that the car companies um, are able to meet that demand because, as you've pointed out, the, the, the consumer appetite for EVs is just growing astronomically. It is. So if Tesla, which again, its stock back over $1,000 a share today, they just opened Giga Berlin, Giga Austin is about to come online. We're talking about a lot of Teslas on the road and a lot of uh, demand for their superchargers. If they open those up to all uh, EVs, and he, Elon Musk has talked about it, but who knows when at this point, 
what would that mean for your business? We actually actually have a lot of Tesla drivers on our own network. So I think roughly 8% of our, our usage on the EVgo network is from Tesla drivers. There are so, I mean, Tesla has been so successful at getting cars out there that the Tesla supercharging network is actually pretty busy with Teslas. So Tesla drivers are coming over to EVgo because we cite our chargers where, people, where drivers want to be anyway. We're a grocery store parking lot. So you can plug into an EVgo station while you're going shopping or while you're taking your, 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 your daughter to piano lessons or wherever that might be. So we actually see that there is an overall need in the market for more fast charging, not less. And we're, we're delighted that others are in the market to help satisfy that demand. Final question, how do you get more EV chargers, not you guys per se, but the industry into uh, urban areas, inner cities, lower income areas, the places where uh, there's certainly a need to trans uh, for away from reliance on fossil fuels, but it's just exorbitantly expensive and unrealistic to do so? EVgo has a commitment to electric for all, and we we actually build our stations primarily historically in metropolitan areas because we like to cite where the where driving happens. We are we are in uh, a variety of different areas within metropolitan areas. We're in over 30 states and 60 metropolitan areas right now today, and that's growing really really quickly. And that's to meet the needs of all kinds of EV drivers. Uh, a substantial portion of the rideshare community. Um, and then Uber and Lyft among them are, are electrifying. And those drivers need to charge fast every day. And they're good users of EVgo's network. And they're all over cities around the country. All right, Kathy, thanks again for your time. It's good to see you. Pleasure. Thank you. Kathy Zoe of EVgo. Up next, Moderna releasing new data about the efficacy of its vaccine in young children. We have the details right after this quick break. Welcome back. Shares of Moderna are lower today, but up about 20% this month. The company releasing new data about the COVID vaccine efficacy in children. Meg Terrell here with the numbers. And what's next in terms of steps here, Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, this is data in kids' babies down to age six months, up to age just under six years old. Uh, and Moderna says this study met its primary endpoint, and it plans to file with regulators in the U.S., Europe, and elsewhere uh, within the coming weeks. Now, the primary goal of this study was showing a similar immune response or level of antibodies uh, in kids with this quarter dose uh, as a young adults, 18 to 25, who get the full dose. And they showed that. This was done in a time when Omicron was the predominant variant in the United States. And so similarly, they saw lower vaccine efficacy against mild disease, about 38 uh, percent in the older age group, 44 percent in the younger age group. Uh, so, of course, that's below that 50 percent threshold we've often heard about from the FDA. However, Moderna moving forward because this study met the primary goal of that antibody response. Now, safety is incredibly important in especially young children. Uh, this is one of the reasons Pfizer went down to such a low dose to try to avoid fevers. Moderna saying no new safety concerns or myocarditis observed in this trial. The tolerability it says was consistent with other commonly used pediatric vaccines. You did see a rate of fever, any fever of about 15 to 17 percent. High fever above 104 was pretty rare. So the question now, Kelly, is what will the FDA do with these data? Will they move forward based on the fact that it met the primary goal? Will they focus on that 50 percent efficacy rate when we're in a different world with the Omicron variant? The expectation is that high antibody uh, level should confer protection against severe disease, but they didn't see that in the trial. Uh, so it's a hypothesis at this point. And Kelly. did you say no myocarditis at all was detected? 
That's right. None was reported in the trial. However, the trial was about 7,000 kids, which is, you know, not a small trial, uh, but it is so rare you might not see it. It's not expected to turn up in such young children, though. Oh, it's not interesting. No, it's uh, parents are always trying to consider all of these risks in this balancing act and should you, shouldn't you? And are they going to require it and are they not? And, you know, as many places look to try to drop the mask mandate, it becomes more important. Uh, Meg, we should mention CNBC's Healthy Returns Summit a week away at the intersection of innovation and investment, some of the sharpest minds in healthcare. Uh, and we're not just talking about Meg Terrell. Go to CNBCEvents.com. You can sign <laughs> up for that. And we are really looking forward to it. Meg, thank you so much. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.